Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. Jesus said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. God, I thank you so much for your word. And I pray now, Holy Spirit, that you take your word and that you would plant it into deep blue soil in our hearts so that it would bear fruit in our lives. God, I pray that for those who are here this morning, who are truly mourned over their sin, who uh, have never seen, uh, who've never experienced the tremendous comfort of your mercy found in the gospel of Jesus Christ, I pray that today would be that day, that you would open their eyes to see how they've offended you, how serious sin is, and yet on the other side of that same coin, how great your grace and your mercy are to great sinners who acknowledge their need for a Savior. And I pray that for every one of, uh, every one of your followers here, all the believers here in this room, God, the reality is, Lord, is that we've not even scratched the surface of just how deep sin can truly run in our hearts. And so I pray that you would shine uh, the light of your word like a, like a searchlight into every corner of our hearts. Lord, search out our motives, our actions, attitudes that are not pleasing to you. Show us, Lord, just how grievous our sin is. And at the same time, would you comfort us with the beauty of your grace and the gospel. Lord, help me as I preach. Uh, Lord, just read this morning in 1 Corinthians 1. The gospel is foolish to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so, Lord, I pray that you would show each one in here, God, that, that what we're talking about, what we're looking at in the Word, it is the very power of God. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So, on the surface, Jesus' words here, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, uh, might seem confusing. Is, this, is Jesus saying that Christians are supposed to be sad all the time? Is he saying that if you decide to, to become a Christian that you're going to be miserable? Is he saying that it's, it's good to walk around being sorrowful all the time? Well, no, that's not what Jesus is saying. Uh, Jesus isn't talking about uh, anyone who mourns for any reason. He's specifically talking about mourning over sin. Remember, we talked last week about how there's a progression in the Beatitudes, right? The poor in spirit, as what we looked at last week, the poor in spirit, those who recognize their spiritual poverty, namely their sin, will naturally mourn over it. The poor in spirit will see how short they fall of God's glory, and they'll be grieved over that. They'll be grieved over the way that they haven't honored the Lord, and they'll naturally mourn over their sin. 2 Corinthians 7 calls it a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. Those who mourn over sin see how evil and destructive sin really is. And they don't love it anymore. They, they abhor it and they turn away from it. And that's what Jesus means here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. And this mourning over sin starts at conversion, but it's not just a one-time thing. Remember, this is 
The Beatitudes are a portrait of a disciple. Together, all of these Beatitudes constitute the, the character of what a disciple looks like. So I said last week, when you see a Christian, you should see somebody resembling the Beatitudes, which means that, that Christians are going to have a, a continual mourning over their sin. And it's striking to me how many Christians lack joy, like real, serious Joy that's not shaken by the circumstances in their lives. It's striking to me how many Christians take so little comfort in the gospel. And I suspect that part of the reason is that we don't appreciate what Romans chapter 7 calls the exceeding sinfulness of sin. We don't mourn over it. And ironically, Jesus teaches in this passage that it is those who truly mourn over their sin who are blessed. Who are happy. It's those who mourn over their sin most who find the greatest comfort in the gospel. And this morning, I hope to show you how that's true and why that's true. My hope this morning is to show you three things. Specifically, the causes of godly grief. So why should sin be mourned over? The characteristics of godly grief. So what, what does it look like to mourn over sin? What does that even mean? And then third, the effects of godly grief. So how does God comfort those who mourn? What does that mean? So that's where we're going this morning. The main point of the sermon is those who sincerely mourn sin will be comforted by God now and into eternity. Those who sincerely mourn sin will be comforted by God now and into eternity. So first, let's turn our attention to the causes of godly grief. Why should sin cause us to mourn? Now, mourning over, over sin in the way that Jesus intends it here is, is really kind of rare. It's common for the consequences of sin to be mourned over, but not the sin itself. I mean, we've got some, some kids, some teenagers in the, in the room this morning, right? So, like, kids, think about it. Uh, have you, have you, can, can you recall a time, maybe in the not-too-distant past, where you, you got in trouble, right, with your mom and dad, and you were really, really upset but if you're honest, like you'd say, you were really kind of just mad at your parents, right? Because they grounded you from something that you wanted to do, or they took away some, a toy or a privilege, right? And you're mad at them. You're not really thinking about the fact that, well, I, I, I hurt my mom and dad, right? Because I didn't honor them, but, I, but I'm, I'm mad about my consequences, right? And here's the thing. Adults do that too, right? Adults, we can raise our hand. We're guilty of that too, right? When we experience some of the natural consequences for our sins sometimes... What do we have a tendency to do? We're not grieving over the fact that we've dishonored God, right? We're grieving over the fact that now we've got to deal with the consequences of this decision that we've made. <clears throat> Many Christians will also feel a deep sense of shame and depression due to their sin, and they'll beat themselves up and, and you know, almost walk around in this woe-is-me mindset. And that's not what Jesus is talking about either. Jesus does not mean that we should all walk around depressed and doubting our salvation 24-7. That is not what it means to mourn sin. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, not blessed are those who mope. Alright? It's a big difference. Big difference. Mourning over sin is viewing yourself and the world around you realistically. Okay? It's acknowledging the presence of sin in our own lives and in the world. And it's acknowledging the destructive effects that sin has. Notice, I want, I want to be careful to point out that 
I said, the, the text says, blessed are those who mourn, and I said that we are to mourn over sin. And that doesn't just mean your own sin. We also mourn over sin in general in the world. When others sin against us, it causes destruction, right? When there's, uh, you know, sin in, in the world, it causes all sorts of chaos. We're going to talk about that in a second. But sin everywhere ought to be mourned. But it starts by mourning the sin in our own hearts. Let me give you some reasons and that sin is worth mourning because that's a, that's a strong word. When you think about the word mourn, like, my, I don't know about you, but my first thought goes to a funeral, right? I mean, when you, when you think about a funeral and you see, for example, a widow, she's weeping. She's grieving the loss of her husband. It's one of the deepest pains you can imagine. And that's what Jesus is saying we ought to do over our sin. That's a, so, I mean, that's a pretty heavy word, right? So why should we be that grieved over sin? Let me give you a few reasons. First of all, sin corrupts everything. Sin corrupts everything. God has a good design. And when we depart from it, inevitably it leads to brokenness and corruption. All death and suffering and hardship is a result of the fall in Genesis 3. And we can't point our finger at Adam and Eve and say it's all their fault. Because guess what? We've sinned too. We've all contributed to it. All the brokenness in the world, we have all played our part in creating the reality that we now live in. And so we mourn the, the devastating effects of sin. Our bodies break down and die. Families break apart. Nations go to war. People oppress and harm each other. Drought and famine and natural disasters destroy entire cities and families and lives. That's why Romans chapter 8 says that we're groaning along with the rest of creation as we wait for Jesus' return. Even atheists know that something is not right in the world. Something is broken and we're longing for restoration. We're looking for a way for it to be restored and fixed. Sin corrupts everything and sin condemns everyone. So another reason we ought to mourn sin is that it condemns everyone. The most devastating effect of sin is that it separates us from God, and it leads to condemnation for everyone who doesn't turn to Jesus. And sin is so serious because all sin is against an infinitely holy God. Because sin is treason against God himself, it's deserving of death and an eternity in hell. And one of the reasons we ought to mourn sin is that multitudes all around us stand condemned every single day. I mean, I just want you to stop and think about this reality. Every single day, thousands upon thousands upon thousands are stepping into eternity, separated from God, in eternal torment, where Jesus says, their worm does not die when the fire is not extinguished. Now, for believers, there is no longer condemnation in Christ Jesus because Jesus died on the cross in our place. But our own sin still ought to grieve us because it's our own sin that condemned Jesus on the cross. He bore the wrath of God, not for any sin of his own, but for our sin. So there's no such thing as consequence-free sin that's just swept under the rug. Our sin is so serious that it required nothing less than the precious blood of Jesus to purchase us out of slavery, to free us from death. 
Just think of the great cost of each individual sin that you commit. Every, even just one sin against God deserves condemnation. Even just one sin is enough to have had to put Jesus on the cross so that his blood would be spilt for us. That's reason enough to mourn our sin. And think of how easy it is, even though we know this as followers of Jesus, to sin against God's grace, right? To decide in that moment of temptation, well, I'm going to go ahead and do this, even though I know it's not what God wants me to do. I'm going to do it anyways, because in the back of our mind, we know Jesus died on the cross for me. And every time we do that, we're sinning directly against God's grace. We're taking the blood of Jesus for granted. We ought to mourn over that. And all of us are guilty of that, including myself. Sin corrupts everything. It condemns everyone. But sin also, this kind of leads to the third reason, it offends God. Sin offends God. It should grieve us when we sin against God because he's so good. He gives us the very breath that we breathe. He showers gifts upon us. He's given us our families, our spouses, our children, our homes. He gives us food to eat. He's blessed us with everything we could possibly need and more, not to mention he saved us from our sin. And when we sin, we're sinning against him. He's never done you any wrong. God has never done you or me any wrong, and yet we sin against him every single day. That ought to cause us to mourn. And, but it also ought to grieve us when others sin against God. All sin is against him, so all sin should grieve Christians. You know, if, if somebody like insulted you, one of your family members, you'd be offended, right? You'd be upset. Why? Because you love your family, right? You love your family members. You would, it, would, it would make you distressed if somebody was you know, trash-talking your spouse or one of your children or your mother or your father. How much more should Christians be grieved that God is not glorified and honored as he deserves? The psalmist writes in Psalm chapter 119, verse 36, he says, My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. Wow. Do your eyes shed streams of tears as you think about the fact that God is not honored and glorified as he deserves? I long to be more like the psalmist in that way. Does it bother you that God's law is broken over and over? Or have you maybe become apathetic to it? And you just maybe even accepting of it? Or worse, are you, are you entertained as you watch others on a TV or a computer screen offending God and breaking his law and finding entertainment? I hope you can clearly see that sin is not funny or interesting or neutral. Sin is devastating down to the little white lie. And it's worth mourning because it's offensive to the God who loves and made us and because it destroys everything in its path, including your own life. Sin kills and destroys. And it's never, ever, ever a good thing. And it's always worth mourning. And then lastly, we mourn sin because sin clings to us. Apart from Jesus, everyone is enslaved to sin. And worst of all, unbelievers don't even know that they're enslaved to sin because they're blinded to sin's grip. Only Jesus can set us free from the bondage of sin when we turn to him. But even as believers, even though sin no longer has dominion over us, as Romans chapter 6 says, we still wrestle with indwelling sin. It's, it's like we can't seem to completely shake it, can we, right? 
As we said last week, the longer you walk with God, the more you see just how deeply sin runs and sinful motives run in our own hearts. I don't know if you ever do this very often, but at the end of the day, just sit back and and reflect on your actions, on your attitudes, on the the words that you spoke and the tone with which you said them and the things that you muttered and the thoughts that you had. I think if we're honest, we'd admit as we take an inventory of our thoughts and attitudes and actions at the end of the day that uh, sin can cling very, very closely. We're like Paul in Romans chapter 7 where he said, uh, I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I don't want is what I keep on doing. Anybody ever been there before? I know I have. So now that we've looked at some reasons why sin should be mourned, what, what, what are the characteristics of godly grief? What does it look like to mourners? Well, first of all, godly grief is earnest. That just means it's, it's from the heart. It's sincere. You know, it's entirely possible to say that you're sorry and not mean it, right? Uh, have you ever seen some of these PR-produced apology statements by celebrities or athletes whenever they get caught in some scandal? And, you know, you can tell, like, a PR expert wrote this apology that they're putting out there. And, I mean, maybe they're sincere. You know, I don't know. We don't know the people, you know, personally. And so, uh, but... You can't help but see some of these things sometimes and go, oh, I don't know if this is sincere, right? Seems like damage control. You can usually tell right off the bat how sincere somebody is uh, and how sincere they regret their actions. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul explained the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. He was following up on a painful letter, he called it, that he had written to the Corinthian church. There had been some ongoing division and false teaching and sin in the church. And out of concern for their souls, Paul wrote a, a difficult letter calling them to repentance. And I want to read you uh, what he said as he was following up on this in 2 Corinthians 7, 9 and 10. He said, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So, worldly sorrow, worldly grief, is more concerned about the pain that sin causes to oneself rather than the dishonor that it brings to God. It's kind of the difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. But true mourning over sin is from the heart. As the book of Joel says, it's, it's, it's a rending of the heart, not just your garment. Right? It's not just an outward display of sorrow, but it comes from a sincere place in our hearts. Godly grief is, is earnest. Godly grief is also honest. Those who mourn sin will honestly confess their sin. That's one of the ways that you can tell whether or not godly grief is earnest. People with worldly sorrow tend to minimize their sin, or they get defensive, or they blame shift. When the prophet Samuel confronted King Saul for disobeying God by keeping back the plunder from the Amalekites, 
Saul tried to cover over his sin rather than confess. First, he, he claimed that it was the people, not him, that had kept back some of the livestock. The, the Lord had told Saul, I want you to put everything to destruction. And they didn't destroy all the livestock. They kept some of it back. And Saul says, hey, it wasn't my idea. It was the people. It was their idea. And then next, Saul says, well, and it was, we wanted to keep some of it back so that we could offer it as a sacrifice to the Lord. We thought, hey, what a great idea. We'll just save some of these lives. And Samuel's like, Samuel's like, that doesn't matter. God wants your obedience. He didn't ask you for sacrifices. He asked you to trust him and to do what he's called you to do. But Saul was interested in trying to shift the blame to somebody else. He was interested in trying to make excuses. He was trying to cover over his sin. And then you contrast that with, with David who succeeded Saul on the throne. And maybe you've heard the story. David, he committed adultery with a woman named Bathsheba. And then to cover it up, he had Uriah killed on the battlefield. He set it up. And then when David was confronted by another prophet, not the prophet Samuel, but this time the prophet Nathan, David responded in a much different way. David responded with Psalm chapter 51. If you've never read it, I would encourage you to go back and read it. At home this afternoon, it's one of the power, most powerful displays of, of repentance in the entire Bible. And he says in verses 3 and 4, in response to his sin being exposed by Nathan the prophet, he says, I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only, O God, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You see, David did not shift the blame or try to spin what he had done into a positive, he was honest. The result for King Saul is that he was removed from the throne. The result for David is that he, a great sinner, was forgiven. Why? Because God comforts those who grieve their sin with mercy. If you will get honest with God about your sin, you will not be met with judgment. I think that one of the things, aside from pride, that keeps us from getting honest with God about our sin, that keeps us from getting honest with others about our sin, is that deep down, we really think that if I really, if, if God really sees who I am, if other people really see who I am deep down inside, he's going to reject me. He's going to condemn me. He's going to meet me with judgment. And what I'm here to tell you today, what the Bible is telling us this morning, what God wants you to hear this morning, is that when you get honest about your sin, when you allow, when you just lay it all out on the table and you admit just how great of a sinner you truly are, you will not be met with condemnation. You will be met with mercy and grace. And the reason that that's possible is because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus died on that cross to bear the punishment that you and I deserve for our sin. And he rose from the dead. He took the judgment that you deserved upon himself so that anybody who comes to him won't be met with judgment. In fact, if you come to Christ, you can't be met with judgment because your sin has already been paid for. It's already been judged 2,000 years ago at the cross, which means that you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to run and hide in the bushes like Adam and Eve did in the garden trying to run away because you're afraid you're going to be exposed for who you really are. Guess what? I've got news for you. All of us are broken. All of us have nothing to offer. We're all impoverished in spirit. None of us is righteous enough to come before God on our own. We're all in desperate need of his grace, and it's okay to admit that. In fact, that's the only way to receive mercy. It's the only way to be free. 
is if you get honest about your sin. And as I said last week, the church is the safest place on the planet to do that. Because you're surrounded by a bunch of other people who know just how impoverished they are spiritually. You're surrounded by a bunch of other people who are completely dependent upon the grace of God. Godly grief is earnest. Godly grief is honest. But godly grief is also eager. Paul says that godly grief, godly sorrow produces repentance. So here's the deal. It does no good to say that you're sorry for your sin while you continue to return to it over and over again. Pharaoh confessed that he had sinned against God, but whenever the hail stopped, a.k.a. the consequences, he went right back to it. He just hardened his heart and went right back to his sin. There's a proverb for the person who does that. Does anybody know what it is? Proverbs 26, 11. As a dog returns to its vomit, so a fool repeats his folly. Godly sorrow leads to repentance, a sincere desire to turn away from sin, which manifests in action. You remember the story of Jonah? When Jonah, in chapter 3, decided to obey God and go to Nineveh, and he finally did what God told him to do. And he preached, he told the Ninevites that yet 40 days and Nineveh is going to be overthrown. And so the people of Nineveh, they listened and they believed God's word. And everyone, from the king all the way down to the beggar on the street, they fasted and they sat in ashes and turned from their wicked ways. And what happened? Verse 10 of Jonah 3 says that when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do. You see, you don't just hear repentance. You see it. You don't just hear repentance. You see it. Godly grief produces repentance because when you see how truly evil and destructive and empty sin is, when you actually come to see that, then it doesn't make any sense to hold on to it anymore, does it? Like If you actually believe the sin that you're holding in your hand is destructive, why would you keep it? Suppose that you and I were going on a walk in the woods. We were out, you know, exploring in nature. And suppose that I was a foraging expert, which I'm not. But suppose that I was. And we're going around and you, you pick a mushroom and you pop that mushroom in your mouth. And I say, wait, stop. That's a poisonous mushroom. You need to spit that thing out because it's going to kill you. Well, in that moment, it would be kind of crazy for you to just look at me and go, eh, I don't care. And just keep on chewing and swallowing it, right? What would you do? You'd spit it out because the foraging expert is telling you that thing is going to kill you. What's the difference? It's because now you see, now you understand this thing that you thought was good for you isn't good for you. It's going to kill you. It's destructive. It's going to harm you. And so you'd be crazy to hold on to it. Someone who continues to cling to their sin does not yet see how truly poisonous it is. Because if you did, you wouldn't cling to it any longer. You wouldn't keep going back to it. You might think that you believe it's destructive, but you have not come to the end of yourself yet. You have not yet seen how truly grievous it is. Because when you do, you're not going to be able to hang on to it. You're not going to be able to hang on to it. Godly grief produces repentance. And this happens initially at conversion, okay? When, when the Holy Spirit opens your eyes to see how vile your sin is and how beautiful and full of mercy Jesus is, there is an immediate change, right? It's called being born again. The Puritan Thomas Chalmers said that repentance makes such a visible change in a person. 
It's as if another soul lodged in the same body. That doesn't mean that you become perfect and that you never sin again. Definitely not. I can attest to that. I sin every single day. But you do get a new nature. And what happens is that when you do sin, it grieves you. It bothers you. And to be honest, the more you grow in the Christ, the more it bothers you. And the more you grieve and the more you mourn it. Once you used to cling to sin and try to find a way to hold on to it like Gollum and Lord of the Rings. My precious, we love our sin, right? But, but now you mourn sin and you love righteousness. Think of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus spent his entire life just greedy for money and extorting money from other people. And then he encounters the mercy and grace of Jesus. And what does he do? He says, the half I give of my goods I give away to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I'll restore it fourfold. Do you see how the repentance was evident in Zacchaeus' life? His God had been money, and by his repentance, he demonstrated that he no longer served money anymore. I'll give it away freely. Jesus is far superior and better than money. But morning sin doesn't stop at conversion. Remember, the Beatitudes are a portrait. As I mentioned a second ago, a Christian is always mourning sin, both her own sin and the sin of the world. Christians regularly confess and repent of sin, not because we need to keep getting saved over and over again. No, because we love Jesus. Sin no longer separates you from God if you're in Christ. Your sin has been paid for, but sin can disrupt fellowship with God, especially if we're you know, uh, persisting in it. Uh, the analogy that I often use is, is think about a marriage relationship, right? If I say something you know, hurtful to my wife one night, until I humble myself and go and apologize and seek to reconcile, there's going to be some tension there maybe, right? It doesn't mean we're not married anymore. We're still just as married as we were before we had this argument, right? We still love each other. We're still committed to this covenant. But there's a sense in which our fellowship might be a little bit disrupted. And that's what sin does in our lives. That's why we regularly come to the Lord confessing our sin. That's why we regularly need to receive from him his ever-flowing mercy and grace. But we also, as believers, need to regularly lament the brokenness in the world. The plights of the perishing. One practical way... Uh, that we do that. Uh, we haven't mentioned it this morning. Uh, today is Sanctity of Life Sunday. Uh, and on Sanctity of Life Sunday, we pause and we reflect on the fact that every human being is made in God's image uh, from conception. And um, it's a day to acknowledge that. It's also a day to acknowledge that the ongoing prevalence of abortion in our nation is a wickedness that's happening right under our noses. And it grieves the Lord. And it ought to grieve us. And so the way that we mourn sin is not by going and shouting and screaming and picketing other people who are doing it, but it's getting on our faces. It's getting on our knees and grieving the fact that there is sin. And there's seeking ways to show mercy to the people who are caught up in these sins, right? But here's the thing. As we mourn our own sin, as we mourn the sin of the world around us, our mourning isn't a hopeless or a defeated one. Okay? It's hopeful. Because Christians are comforted by God's mercy, even as we mourn. It's, I want to finish by looking at the effects of godly grief. How does God comfort those who mourn? Jesus says, they shall be comforted. How? Well, as I mentioned earlier, when we are honest about our sin, 
when we confess our sin, we're not met with judgment, but we're met with mercy. Psalm 51, 17, we read it earlier. God will not reject a broken or a repentant heart. And the cross of Christ is what makes this certain. I love the image of the prodigal son. Many of you know the parable of the prodigal son. It's a wonderful picture of the way that the Lord responds to us when we humble ourselves, when we mourn over our sin. The son uh, you know, says, I don't want anything to do with you anymore, Dad. He takes his share of the inheritance. He goes off and he squanders it in sin and in godless living. He comes to the end of himself. He runs out of money. He's living in pig slop. And he realizes, I don't have any other options. I need to humble myself. And I need to go. And I need to return to my father. And maybe he'll let me be a servant. And the picture is so amazing. As, as this prodigal son who probably looks disheveled and dirty and just a shell of himself before he left as he comes trudging down the road, says the father saw him from a distance. And the father, you know, picks up his, his robe and he begins to take off running. And he starts sprinting towards his son. And he takes him in his arms and he embraces him and he kisses him and he weeps for joy and he puts a ring on his hand and he calls for new clothes, new robes to be put on him and he throws a big giant party. Because he said, this my son is lost and now he is found. And that, Jesus said, is how God responds to those who mourn over their sin. So if you're still questioning whether or not it's safe for you to get real with God about your sin this morning, I hope that that answers your question for you. That's the way that God's going to respond to you when you mourn over your sin. Why would you want to hold on to something so destructive, so vile, when you could trade it in for something so beautiful? Discomfort isn't just for when you initially come to Christ, though. It's a never-ending well that we draw from. Mourning your sin, as I said, doesn't mean kicking yourself or beating yourself up. We grieve the sin, but simultaneously we take comfort in Christ. If you have fled to Jesus for refuge, then you are considered one with him. I wish I had more time to unpack this, but I really want you, uh, to, if you're, especially if you're a follower of Christ this morning, to walk away understanding this. As Christians, we are literally members of Jesus' body, okay? So now, because of that, because you're a member of his body, your sin does not draw out his anger anymore. It draws out his compassion. Ephesians 5 says that no one ever hates his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. So just as, like, if you sprained your wrist, you wouldn't cut off your hand or, like, hit it with a hammer because you're mad at it, Right? But what are you going to do? You're going you're gonna to nurse it back to health. You're going to care for it. Why? Because it's a very part of your own body. Do you see what I'm saying? The Bible says that you yourself are a member of Jesus' body. So when you sin, he's not going to smack you with a hammer. He's not going to sever you from him and cut you off. He's going to nourish you. His compassion is going to be drawn up. He's going to care for you. He's going to minister to you. He wants to pour grace out to you. That's his heart for you as his child as a member of his very body. Sometimes he ministers to us with discipline, yes, right? But it's always done in love. So what do you need to do? If you're struggling with indwelling sin right now as a follower of Jesus, you look away from yourself and you look to Christ. For every one look at yourself, 
Robert Burton Shane said, take ten looks to Christ. As long as you're looking at yourself and your own shortcomings, you're going to be discouraged. So let indwelling sin drive you into the arms of Christ again and again and again. In fact, that's one of the purposes that it serves in our life. It helps us to be constantly reminded of our desperate need for it. But there's one other way in which God comforts those who mourn. He comforts us with mercy, but he also comforts us with coming restoration. They shall be comforted is a literal promise. A day is coming when sorrow and sigh will flee away and it will turn into laughter and dancing. One day the risen Jesus will return. And on that day, sin and death will be destroyed forever. And Jesus will reverse all of the effects of sin in the world. Everything that causes us to mourn right now will be gone forever and ever. And Ephesians chapter 1 says that we've got the Holy Spirit inside of us, and the Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Which means this isn't a, well, that's probably going to be what happens. Or you'll probably receive that inheritance. It's 99.9% sure. No, it's a done deal. You are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, Ephesians chapter 1 says. Which means that is our certain future. He will wipe away every single tear from our eyes. So here's the bottom line of what this means for you as a believer. It is certain that one day our bodies will be raised imperishable and glorious. It is certain that one day your struggle with sin will be over. And you will never struggle with sin again. You'll never sin again. You're never going to want to sin again in the new heavens and the new earth. It is certain that one day there will be no more sin in the world. No more sorrow. No more death. Nothing to make us afraid ever again. It is certain that one day we will look upon the face of Jesus without a veil separating him. We will see him as he is, and we will live in the presence of God forever and ever, right here on a restored earth. It's the certainty of that promise that comforts us now, and we will be perfectly comforted in his presence then. And 1 Thessalonians 5 says that he who called you is faithful. He will surely do it. So we've looked at the causes of godly grief this morning that sin corrupts and condemns and offends. We've looked at the characteristics of godly grief. Godly grief is earnest. It's honest. It's eager. And we've looked at the effects of godly grief. Those who sincerely mourn sin will be comforted by God now and into eternity.